Our scripture passage this morning, uh, for the third time, is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'd invite you to turn there in your analog or digital form of Bible this morning, uh, whether it's on your phone or in a book in your lap, uh, and follow along as we read from the English Standard Version translation. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, we confess the scriptures are your word, uh, breathed out by you and given to us so that they would be profitable to us for the teaching of doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. So that not only the man of God, which is what Paul means by gospel preachers and teachers, not only the man of God, but all of us would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, this is why we place ourselves under the word of God. Lord, that you would use the scriptures to change us, transform us, motivate us, command us, exhort us, correct us when needed, uh, reprove us when we're wrong. Do all of these things in our lives in such a manner that we become increasingly conformed to the image of your own Son, who confessed that the scriptures could never be broken, who confessed that all of the scriptures spoke of him, who himself understood your word, lived your word, obeyed your word, followed your word. And even before, uh, before he came into this world, even his own spirit inspiring this word through the prophets and even working in the apostles to give us faithfully your word that your scriptures would do its work in us. 
that we might be faithful representatives and ambassadors of the truth, that we might be salt and light to this world and our generation. This we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this is our third message as we come into this very, very special letter between the Apostle Paul and Timothy, uh, whom he designates as his true child in the faith. Uh, Paul has uh, been with Timothy in Ephesus. He's gone on from Ephesus. Uh, He has left Timothy there uh, in Ephesus that he might address a number of problems that were there at the church in Ephesus, things that needed to be definitely uh, spoken to, things that needed to be uh, corrected. Now, this letter of 1 Timothy, though, is the second recorded message that we have uh, in the New Testament to the church at Ephesus. Uh, as you'll recall, I've indicated that there are five such messages to the church at Ephesus in the New Testament. And this is the second. So I want to call your attention to the first. The first we find in the book of Acts. Uh, we find where the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 called for the elders of the church at Ephesus to come to the seacoast port city of Miletus uh, so that he might speak to them, that he might address them, because he had some prescience, some foreknowledge, that face-to-face he would never see them again. And so he has a a very, very important message to give them, uh, which we find in Acts chapter 17. And I want to break into that message at verse 26. It's the middle part of the message. You could sort of divide the message into three parts, but this occurs in the middle part of the message. And he comes to a certain summary point, and he says, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Now, when you read this and you reflect upon it, there are two outstanding themes. Paul's admonishment, which was, of course, scriptural, biblical teaching, the admonishment teaching of the whole counsel of God, and the apostles' tears that accompanied that teaching and admonishment. For three years, both publicly and from house to house, the apostle Paul taught the Ephesians, the whole counsel of God. And he did it with such love that his emotions were continually breaking into tears. 
tears that signal his passion for God's truth and God's love. Paul was gripped by the truth. Paul was gripped by the love of God. And gripped by the truth, he was compelled to teach it. Gripped by the love of God, he was compelled to teach it with such emotion and passion that it often erupted into tears. God's truth, which will always do the greatest good for you. God's love that will always be motivated to do the highest good for you. Paul, motivated by God's truth and God's love, with the promise that this was going to build them up and to give them the inheritance among all those who are saved and sanctified by the gospel of God's grace in Christ. So the twin themes that I have mentioned the last couple of Sundays, God's truth and God's love, show up in Paul's own message here to the Ephesians. They show up in what he says his great purpose was to do, to present to them the whole truth of God, the whole counsel of God. It shows up in the very life and attitude of how he lived among them. His great love for them, his passion for them to know God's truth, his passion that God's truth would do them the greatest good possible, to sanctify them, to set them apart, to give them the certain promise of the inheritance that God has stored up for all those who trust in the grace of Christ. Why is his concern so strong? Because Paul knows that the great enemies of God's truth and God's love are not just outside the church, but even inside the church. For Paul warns them that even from within the church, there will arise those that Paul characterizes as wolves who are going to twist the word of God and then pull them away from Christ and destroy, as it were, the ministry that Paul has labored so strongly to give them during these three years of ceaseless labors. So Paul is warning the elders of the church that they must guard carefully everything that's been entrusted to them. Now this fear that the Apostle Paul has, that he indicates here, has begun to be true a few years later when Paul leaves Timothy there at Ephesus. He leaves him there because there now is arising within the church those who are false teachers, uh, false teachers with respect to the, the law of God, um, bringing up myths and um, uh, genealogies, endless genealogies, false speculations that are leading people away from the centrality of the gospel and Christ. Uh, that which is going to do the church no eternal or earthly good. Now, we're not the church at Ephesus. Yet, this letter speaks to us because Paul instructing Timothy as the chief pastor and elder of this church, Paul instructing 
Timothy is instructing him in the centrality of gospel truth and in all of the implications and applications of gospel truth as it applies to the church. And so we're able to to look at the main lesson for us that when we reflect upon all the words that Paul gives to Timothy, when we reflect upon the gospel, we're able to say this, that if we're going to follow Christ in accordance with the gospel, then we've got to have every bit the same concern for God's truth and for God's love that we find Paul exhorting Timothy and the church at Ephesus. That is to say, we need to understand that it is our great concern to continue to live and build upon the foundation of our salvation in Christ, gospel truth, gospel love. Inseparable twins, that which cannot be broken apart without serious damage and destruction to both. Now, as we've been looking at that, we said that these first 11 verses can be uh, divided into sort of an easy compartmentalization of truths. Uh, Right caring with respect to love. And we saw this in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love, or the goal of our instruction is love. We also saw it exemplified in Paul's great love and care for Timothy. So gospel truth leads us to live in terms of right caring for one another, right love toward one another. But then as Paul addresses the false teachers with their false teaching and their false motivation, we realize that to live the gospel, both in terms of truth and love, we have to have the right beliefs. We have to think rightly. We have to have God's truth rightly constraining, instructing, guiding, leading our own thinking. So it's back to the idea of God's truth is so essential. But the third part in uh, these first 11 verses, we can say, is really right living, living in the right way, living in such a way that we are in accordance with the gospel, right caring, right thinking, right living as sort of a simple way to organize these first 11 verses and their application to us. Now we're getting down then to this last section, right living. And the apostle is going to focus our attention upon the law. Because the false teachers were misusing the Old Testament and the law of God. And so Paul's instruction to Timothy is to remind him, this is not new teaching to Timothy, but to remind Timothy about the proper understanding of the law. So three ideas we're going to look at. The law's goodness, the goodness of the law. The law's purpose, the proper way of using the law. And then the law's relationship to love. Because that's implicit in everything that the apostle has to say. Now first then, the law's goodness. Look at verse 8. What Paul begins with is, is this. He says, we know that the law is good. That is to say, he's, he's saying something that Christians, by this point, Timothy, 
the Christians at Ephesus, ought to know that the Apostle Paul has always said that the law of the Old Testament is a good thing. The law is good. But when he says this, it's part of a conditional phrase. The law is good if, if, that is, he qualifies it with an if. But before we get to the qualification, I want us to think about what Paul means by the goodness of the law. In the first place, the goodness is something that Paul could say we know. Christians should know that the law of God is good because the law is a transcript of God's own holiness and goodness. The law flows from God's own good and just and holy and moral character. The law is a kind of transcript of what God ultimately is like when he communicates himself and his ways and his thinking and his rules to us. So in that sense, the law is good because its origin and source is in God himself. And so the, the Old Testament law that we read in the Old Testament, we have to say this is good. We also know that it's good because of specific teachings that Paul has given. For instance, in Romans chapter, chapter 7, verse 12, Paul says, The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So in a general sense, because the law comes from God, we know it's good. In a very specific sense, in terms of something that Paul taught in, in the book of Romans, we know that the law is good. But we also need to notice what Paul says in verse 9, the conditional. If. Paul says, if the law is used properly. Now also notice, though, in verse 9, that what follows that, if the law is used properly, Paul says this. But the law is not laid down for the just. And then he goes on to say, for whom the law is laid down, which we'll get to. But I want us to think about the goodness of the law and how the goodness of the law is that which comes from God, but the goodness of the law isn't given in the sense that the Apostle Paul is so concerned about here. It isn't given, it, it isn't laid down for the just. It isn't laid down for the person who is just. Now, we, we need to remember why Paul says this and what's Paul's perspective and we must see the gospel distinction that the apostle has made that stands behind this. What stands behind Paul's statement that the law is not laid down for the just is the crucial saving significance that Paul has stated between justification by faith and justification by the works of the law. Paul has made this distinction very clear in the book of Galatians. For instance, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law... No one will be justified. 
In verse 21, he goes on to say, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, here's the point that Paul is making. The law of God has no power, and it has no purpose to make anyone righteous or just before God. It doesn't have that ability. It doesn't have that power. This is why the law is not laid down for the just or for the righteous. It's the same word in the Greek. The law can't make a person just. The law can't make a person righteous. But further, Paul goes on to say that not only can the law not make a person righteous or just in the sight of God, the law can't take a Christian and make him more holy. The law has no power to take someone who's just, justified in Christ, and make him a better person. And that's a crucial thing. Many Christians think, I'm saved by grace and I'm sanctified by the law. I'm saved by grace and faith, but I'm sanctified by my ever getting better obedience. No. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3, because he speaks to this. He says to the Galatians, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that is, coming to faith in Christ, by the working of the Holy Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, what Paul means by being perfected by the flesh is nothing less than their attempt to be obedient and conform to the law. In other words, Paul challenges the Galatian Christians. They did not receive the Holy Spirit into their lives by trying to obey the law. Rather, they received the Spirit into their lives when they put their faith in Christ. The saving principle is faith. But also, the sanctifying principle is faith. You grow spiritually by faith. According to Paul, and all of Scripture, everyone who's righteous by faith and the work of Christ stand in contrast with those who seek to be righteous according to the law. Because those who seek to be righteous according to law are spiritually dead. They live in their trespasses and sins. The principle of faith in Christ is that of the Spirit working in their lives by virtue of the work of Christ so that they actually, by Christ, by faith in Christ, begin to live in conformity to the law of God, uh, even, as it were, to the Ten Commandments. Because look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, after declaring those who are redeemed as there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say that the work of Christ for them, the indwelling spirit within them, is in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, who walk in the Christian life not according to the flesh, 
trying to achieve obedience and good works and conformity to the law of God, but rather, rather says, according to the Spirit, the Spirit who works within us to will and to do God's good pleasure. So it is the Spirit working in them that works in them to grow as a Christian. Why then would they try to use the law as a principle of obedience and sanctification? Why would they try to grow as Christians by attempting to obey and conform to the law? The law was good. But the law, obedience to the law, trying to conform to the law, trying to become more Jewish by adopting the practices of the law, the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, none of that promises spiritual growth. None of that promises spiritual maturity. The law is not the principle of godliness or spiritual growth or justification before God. Because look at verse 5 again. Paul says, The aim of our charge is love. The goal of our instruction is love that issues from what? Obedience to the law? No. It issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The true, essential qualities of godliness are not produced by the law of Moses, not produced by the practice of the laws of Moses, not produced by attempting to conform to the laws of Moses. They're produced by the power of the gospel, by faith in Christ, by the work of the Spirit within. So that's why Paul says, the law is good, but only if it's used properly. The law is not laid down for the just. And then he goes on to say, for whom the law is laid down. So that's our second point, coming to our second point. The law's proper use, as the Apostle Paul presents it here. Remember, Paul says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The false teachers have missed the point completely. Um, They have gotten it all wrong. They don't know the mission and message of the law at all. They don't understand what they're saying, even though they confidently act like they do understand what they're saying. So Paul presents, in contrast to that, the proper use of the law, the lawful use of the law, and he does so in verse 9. He says, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So stop right there. The lawless and the disobedient. That's the target purpose and mission of the law. The law is laid down because of its ethical and moral force to speak to those who are not righteous, to speak to those who are not lawful, to speak to those who are not obedient. God has given the law, he's laid down the law for the sake of those who are wicked in order to confront them and, if possible, to convince them that they are, in fact, wicked and evil in the sight of God. 
That's what Paul is saying here. Now, it's important then to note all the other things that Paul says next. He goes on to give four important descriptive terms. And then he goes on to describe another five or so categories of specific deeds. And when he does so, if you read this carefully and closely, you recognize that he's echoing the Ten Commandments. Uh, The best scholars recognize clearly he's echoing the Ten Commandments, as well as, in a couple of instances, citing things that occur in Exodus 21. You know, Exodus 20, the first giving of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 21 has some very important case law applications of the Ten Commandments. Paul's statements right here echo Exodus 20 and 21 in this regard. So the first four things that Paul says, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. If we had the time, I could trace through the scriptures that indicate that ungodly refers to the first commandment, sinners refers to the second commandment, uh, unholy refers to the third commandment, and profane refers to the fourth commandment. I I read the, the scholars who did this. It's clear. It's competent. It's complete. It's clear that this is the way it is. But then Paul clearly goes on to follow the rest of the Ten Commandments, the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth, And then the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, seems to be covered by when Paul says, and whatever else is contrary to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And so, so the Ten Commandments clearly in vogue here. Now, I want to drop down to Commandments 5 through 9, as they're specifically stated here, or reflected here in what is said. Remember the second part of the law, beginning at you shall honor your father and mother all the way to you shall not covet. Detail, in a negative sense, our positive responsibilities to how to really love our neighbors as ourselves. And we see five specific ways here, if we had coveting six specific ways in which that love is deeply violated, how we show, how things show up among human beings in terms of human beings' inhumanity to other human beings. Now, Paul is going to address some of the worst breakings and violations of the second part of the Ten Commandments. So, with respect to verse 5, he talks about those who strike their parents. Now, if you go to Exodus 21.15, you'll see that this kind of the striking of the parents was considered so deeply awful and evil it incurred the death penalty. Now, this is not your two-year-old hitting you in a rage temper. No. This is talking about kids who are approaching adulthood, teenage young boys or whatever. And uh, the law of God was very clear that this is so awful to violate your parents this way. Anyway, going on. We, we, my temptation here is to say something about each one of these. We don't have time, so let me just move through them quickly. The sixth commandment, murderers. Uh, the seventh commandment is referred to in terms of the sexually moral and homosexual practitioners. The Eighth Commandment is enslavers. It's literally man-stealers. So the Eighth Commandment is you shall not steal. 
in Exodus 21 tells us that the worst kind of stealing is when you steal another human being for the purposes of enslaving him yourself or selling him to another in order for him to be enslaved. In the the ninth commandment, which is the bearing of false witness, Paul refers to liars and perjurers. So now after, after listing these, and he sums it all up, as I said, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, the proper use of the law is to confront wickedness, to confront any and every form of human wickedness, anything that is contrary to the sound doctrine of the gospel of Christ. So Paul is saying to Timothy, reminding Timothy, the primary purpose of the law under the gospel is not the obedience of Christians. The primary purpose of the law, the number one purpose of the law, is to speak to the wickedness of the human race. Paul is making it very clear the Ten Commandments were not just for Israel between 1500 B.C. And, and the first century. The Ten Commandments represent the always valid concern for God has that human beings would live according to holiness and rightness and justice and ultimately how these things express love. second biblical truth that occurs in what Paul is saying here is that, and I think I've just said this, the Ten Commandments yet represent God's moral standard for all of humanity. It's interesting to me that uh, often with young with teenagers, I've talked to them, taught them for 13 years, they will often say things like that. Well, I can understand how the Ten Commandments apply to us, but I don't understand how the Ten Commandments can apply to people who are atheists or how they can apply to people who come from another religion. And I'm going, so you think that if people think that God doesn't exist, that there isn't going to be consequences on the day of judgment? God doesn't exist, so I can't go to hell, because God doesn't exist, so I don't believe in hell, so I can't go to hell. Really? Well, that's what postmodernism has done to the thinking of young people. They think that reality is formed by simply what we feel and what we think and what we believe. No, reality is created by God. And, and God's truth, in terms of the Ten Commandments, are universal. Universal. They have never ceased to be the standard. They didn't become the standard for human beings at Mount Sinai. They were already the standard for human beings from, from creation on. Just because it says you shall not murder... In the sixth commandment, in, in, in Exodus chapter 20, does that mean that Cain, who killed his brother Abel, wasn't guilty of murder? Of course not. Of course not. Continuing to publish the truth that are found in the Ten Commandments is so necessary. Why? Because the further people are away from hearing... God's standard of wickedness, the easier it is for them to continue to repress that same law that God wrote on their hearts. Uh, We know this in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. 
that God gave a conscience to human beings, and in that conscience he wrote his law. But toward the end of chapter 1, Paul says about the wickedness that we find among human beings, why this human wickedness seems to be unbounded and seems to grow, why people are filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice and envy and murder and strife and deceit. He basically says it's because they are suppressing that knowledge. They're refusing to acknowledge that God exists and therefore in their refusal to acknowledge that God, the lawgiver, exists, they suppress what's written on their conscience. But then Paul says, but nevertheless, they know God's righteous decree. They know that those who practice such things deserve to die. Not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice these things. So, publicly declaring the law of God to those who are not believers is an act of love. Because it is a warning and a reminder to them. What does God require? You cannot continue to live this way in some pretended deceit that God doesn't really care. So that leads us to the last thought. The relationship between law and love. Let's begin with the unbiblical definition of love as we find it in the world today. Please understand this. The ordinary ways in which human beings speak of love, sing of love, write about love, may be terribly accurate with respect to what human beings feel, but are terribly wrong-headed if we think that that kind of love is always a virtue. That is to think that human love and the way people feel and what people are passionate about is automatically something you would say, well, that's a good thing because I'm going to show you that human love has the power to be used for great wickedness as much as it would ever be used for great righteousness. Let me just give you a fairly well-known example. We've had a number of celebrities go to jail out of love for their college-bound students. The excuse that every dad and every mom has made before the court, these celebrities who paid for adjusted SAT scores, who bribed uh, uh, sports coaches to give their children scholarships. In every one of these cases, the bottom line defense, the, the bottom line plea, please understand me, please have some compassion and sympathy for me, was this. I did this because I loved my child. I wanted my child to get into the best school. This was my great desire for my child. I wanted to do this. It was love. It was love. It was love. Well, how can you condemn that? Well, the court condemned it as illegal. And the commentators from the left and the right condemned it as immoral. You cheated. Not fair. What you did was morally wrong. 
not just illegal, but morally wrong. And then you have tearful repentance on the part of some of these celebrities, especially some of the ladies. I am so sorry. I really, really, truly, uh, uh, you know, I let my child down. Love motivated evil. But let me just remind you of a far worse case that occurred here in Bakersfield back in 2004. It was a brutal murder of a 17-year-old single mother of a three-year-old child who got crossways with her cousin, female cousin, and a group of female friends, including some male friends, because she stole from them some methamphetamines. They kidnapped her. They brutalized her. They tortured her. And then, because of what they had done to her, they said to one another, she can identify all of us and what we've done to her. They killed her. Put her body in a 55-gallon drum, filled it with cement. Now, shocking, right? No. Here's what's shocking. This girl had an aunt, the mother of her cousin, who participated in the murder. And publicly, during the arraignment, it was recorded of her what she said on behalf of her own daughter, a conspirator in this murder. My daughter is a good girl. Far better than her cousin ever was. Express that kind of sentiment. So there you have a mother's love defending a daughter who has participated in the brutalization of not just a stranger and not just another human being, but her own cousin. That's why we have to understand that the worldly understanding of love is so easily misdirected to that which is evil. The the world understands love as that which we like to a very, very strong, even passionate degree, that which we are so greatly attracted to, or that which we possess, that which belongs to us. Biblical love is very different. Biblical love is grounded in the revelation of what God did in his son, Christ. So the bottom line for biblical love is what? Service to other human beings. To do them the highest good we can possibly do them. Even to the point of sacrifice. And the ultimate form of this servant-oriented love is the willingness to sacrifice yourself in the pursuit and purpose of doing the best you can and the good that you might do for another human being. And Paul says, the goal of our instruction, the aim of our charge is love. It is this kind of love. This is how we, as Christians, embrace 
right living. This is how we understand the relationship between law and love. Godly love never violates godly law. And godly law never takes us to do anything for any other human being that is not ultimately in accordance with godly love. God's truth is always the best thing that can ever happen to a human being. Godly love is always wanting the best that can ever happen to another human being according to God's law and God's truth. And I'll close with this. This is why the Apostle Paul says... In Ephesians chapter 5, what is the design for right living with respect to the Christian life? Therefore, be imitators of God and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Then he goes on to say, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. The gospel always calls us to live rightly. Always calls us to live in accordance with gospel truth and gospel love. Not out of your own fleshly energies, but always because in embracing Christ, the spirit of the living God comes to live within us to make God's truth attractive, to make God's love realizable in our lives, that we might trust that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is God by his Spirit who is at work within us to will and to do his good pleasure. Father, Um, May the things that we come to understand from Scripture be the things which transform and change our lives. Father, help us, we pray, to reflect Christ, to be deeply committed to gospel truth and gospel love. In Jesus' name.